Welcome to the Crystal Clear Podcast with Weekly Standard founder and editor-at-large, Bill Crystal. I'm Eric Felton. The Crystal Clear Podcast is sponsored by the Dollar Shave Club. They don't mess around with 14-blade razors and magic lubrication strips or other silly shave technology. As a Weekly Standard Podcast listener, you can enjoy your first month with the Dollar Shave Club for just $5 with free shipping included. Just go to dollarshaveclub.com slash weeklystandard. Bill Crystal, welcome to the Crystal Clear Podcast. Thanks, Eric. So I guess the first question is, how's your kafifi? Yeah, that was good with Trump's <laughs> half-completed or incomplete tweet, much interpreted. It's good that he did that. It gives us something to talk about in between screaming and yelling about Paris climate change accords and Russia and and everything else that's going on. The semiotics of tweeting. Yeah, I guess he just. I wonder what happened. I guess he was tweeting late. It was past just past midnight. I was awake actually. It was it was I think just after midnight, and I was actually looking at Twitter and uh, you know scooting around the way one does on Twitter and online, and I saw that he had tweeted this half complete. He obviously had uh, meant to say something else. Like he meant to say something like. Uh, Despite negative media coverage, and then he yeah. coverage he 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 mistyped or started to fall asleep or something, and typed "kofefe," yeah. and then the tweet ended, and maybe he hit send by mistake. And I kept waiting for him to erase it, to delete it, or to correct it, or some staffer to do the same in his name. And it was kind of astounding that he must have just dozed off and didn't care or didn't realize he had tweeted it. And then no one – I guess they didn't want to wake him up at 12.15 a.m. and say, uh, Mr. President, we have to fix this tweet. Maybe they don't have the authority to do it themselves. So it's kind of comical that it stayed up for five, six hours. And it did lead to a fantastically – actually quite amusing round of you know Twitter-level humor about Covfefe and all that. And then actually t- Trump himself – it's an interesting little case study and sort of how his mind works, I think – that he fixed it pretty well You know, early the next morning. He had some slightly self-deprecating – I don't know what he's saying. Something about how you know I'm letting you all figure out what Kofefe means or something like that. He he sort of had a clever tweet to kind of both put it to bed and show that he was aware of the whole thing. You Although know? there was that really weird Sean Spicer moment where he was trying to say there was some like a, a secret. Well, that message. was later. So that was later. So first, so Trump sort of handled it pretty well, I thought. And then he, but then he went on some tirade about something else and immediately stepped all over the story. You know what it was sort of a rather nice impression of slight self-deprecating humor by attacking. I can't I remember defending Carter Page and attacking the FBI and the CIA. I think which is a little bit of a nutty tweet. And then that afternoon, as you say, revealingly though maybe Sean Spicer somehow felt compelled to pretend that it wasn't a mistake at all. So sort of Trump got his defenses back up. So it does seem like – and insisted on a totally implausible and ridiculous story. I think Spicer really meant that. He wasn't just joking deadpan that, no, no, Trump knew what he was doing. You know, Some people understood it, which, of course, led to its own wave of amusing internet or Twitter-level interpretation. So I do think with Trump – God knows there are many problems, in my opinion, with the Trump presidency and with him being president. But the thin-skinnedness, the, the inability to laugh off a – error, it's not even error, just a kind of flub, you might say, um, the insistence of that his aides go out and defend the indefensible or, or claim the un, the implausible, let's put it that way, uh, is, is actually a problem. It's a PR problem, it's a political problem, but it's a real world problem, too, because, you know, it's a tough job, the presidency, and things are going to go slightly wrong, and you've got to roll with the punches, and he's not a real roll with the punches kind of guy. 
One wonders, has he not heard of autocorrect on, on the... the... <laughs> yeah, though, I don't think it autocorrected to Cuff but you think he... <laughs> Auto-uncorrect, should have He should have had the autocorrect the other way. I don't know. It's an, I mean, it will, I'm sure the historians will look at this. In 20, years, <laughs> 20 years from now, when we have the presidential library records open, we'll know exactly what he intended. The Twitter or library. Where he was when he, when he tweeted this exactly and, and so forth. But I, I, to come back to the semi-serious point, I, I mean... The um, yeah, the rolling with the punches thing. I think if you look at successful presidents, they they either have the ability to do that almost naturally, someone like Reagan, I'd say, or they learn it pretty quickly, even if it cuts against their grain, and they don't like to do that. You know, they're stubborn and they're proud, but they still learn that you know, just in politics and in life, not everything's going to go quite the way you want, and people will take some cheap shots at you, and something will get screwed up, and it really wasn't your fault, but you're the president, so you get blamed for it, and you'll make a judgment call, and it won't work out, and you kind of gotta take your lumps a little bit and move on. And I think it's a big problem for Trump that he just fights these pitch battles everywhere. Some of these places are not well chosen, I would say, strategically or tactically. And he can get himself into sort of dig, you know, the, what's the expression? If you're in a hole, don't don't keep on digging. He, he is a big keep on digging guy when he's in <laughs> holes. It's paid off. He thinks I'm tough. I show, you know, never give an inch and it's, right, I could win this. The, yeah, and I look what happened in the campaign. They said I was in a hole and I just kept calling Hillary Clinton crooked Hillary and I didn't back off on my comments about McCain or the Mexican judge or any of those things and didn't hurt me. But it's one thing in a campaign where it's a binary choice and he squeaked to a victory and, and the campaign ends. It's another thing, you know, when it's a four-year presidency. Well, let's talk about this four-year presidency and the big picture. You in the magazine, The Weekly Standard, this week um, have an editorial titled Question Time. I guess not Prime Minister's Question Time, but the Presidency Question Time, in which you ask a series of questions. And I want to pose some of those questions to you and see if, instead of just questions, if you have some answers for us on it. Okay. Um, The first question you ask, how does this end? I think that should be the last question. So we're going to come back okay. to that one. And instead, we're going to jump to the next question, which is, is Trump a model for the future of American politics? I mean, let me say why I wrote this. Because it was actually I'd written a couple of previous editorials after Trump and obviously critical of Trump and uh, that we need to sort of get think through an agenda after Trump. And But, but people, people, a lot of people were in touch and yeah, how do we know what it's going to look like? Do we do we are we talking about saving the Republican Party or saving conservatism from being Trumpite, which I think would be an unfortunate thing? Are we talking about a new center? Are we talking about a primary challenge to Trump in twenty twenty? Is he going to be impeached? I mean, just all these practical questions. And obviously, we don't know the answers. I don't think to any of them, and so much depends on contingent events. And I was trying to make sort of in a way a very simple point, which is uh, one can really come to real judgments about current events. One can say that Trump is making a mistake on X or did the right thing on Y or that the Trump presidency in general is is unlikely to succeed um, or that we should have a skeptical stance toward him or be, uh, in my view, be critical of him where he deserves criticism and, and not back off just because some people think, oh, it's our team and all that. So you can have convictions. You can take strong positions. But we should also be modest about our ability to really foresee the future. I don't think we know right now. To take one very practical question that I spent a lot of time talking about with a lot of friends, and I don't think most of us don't know. I mean, are we talking about, if you don't like Trump, but you sort of like modern American conservatism, you think that basically the Reaganite view of the world was sound in terms of foreign policy, markets in domestic policy, uh, um, you know, a kind of 
the mainstream of American conservatism, mainstream of the Republican Party even, has, has, has helped the country, helped the world, and it needs to be updated and improved. But basically, can that be revitalized? And can the party be revitalized? Or are we looking at a real new moment where conservatism is exhausted? There's a reason Trump was able to take it over so easily, both conservatism and the Republican Party. Maybe we need a new party, a new center, an independent candidate. Uh, Is Trump just going to blow up and self-destruct? What are people's reactions to that going to be? And what I was trying to say is those things you have to be very open-minded about, I think, and very uh, flexible and sort of uh, alert in terms of capitalizing on chances and, and, and trying to take advantage of situations when they present themselves in terms of shaping the future. But it's just so it's, – it's frustrating in a way not to be able to say here in June, the beginning of June of 2017, here's what I think we need to do over the next 4, 8, 12, 16 years. We need to do X in the party or Y as a new party or Z in terms of these policies are crucial. But you look around the world, who knows what part of the world is going to be most dangerous. You look at domestic policy, there's so many different issues that present themselves. So I think the combination of, of having convictions and being open-minded, it's sort of it's kind of obvious point in a way, but uh, that's, in a, that's what I tried to capture in that little editorial. Well, if you're talking about the future of Trumpism, I'm, I'm interested in how you define Trumpism. Is it about any set of principles and views and policies, or is it all really wrapped up in the personality of Trump himself and thus something that's sui generis and not to be repeated? So that's a huge question, I think a very good question, and you put it well, and the answer is I don't know. On the one hand, I, I don't think anyone else could have pulled it off. Trump was unique. He was a celebrity. I'm not, the, the moment was unique. He had Bush as his primary opponent, his primary, primary opponent, and then Clinton as his general election opponent. If you're running as the candidate of change, you know, who, who better to run against than a Bush and then a Clinton? There are a million things that were unique and, and uh, or idiosyncratic about 2016 and that are unique and idiosyncratic about Trump. So maybe we shouldn't overestimate, overinterpret this. You know what I mean? Maybe Trump will be president. He'll be president probably for four years, not eight, probably, maybe, maybe eight, maybe less than four. But anyway, he'll go and we'll be back to, so to speak, politics as usual with its strengths and weaknesses and the kind of agendas we were talking about in 2014 and 2015 will come right back. We'll have our foreign policy debates. We'll have our, uh, should we reform the welfare state or radically cut the welfare state or how do we fix entitlements debates and so forth and so on. I think that's quite possible. Trump is a very unusual figure and one can overinterpret him and think, gee, he tells so much about the future and on the other hand, maybe he does tell us something about the future. The, the growth of celebrity, the importance of celebrity in our culture is, is I think, is pretty obviously that, that's greater than it was, don't you think? I, I do, although I wonder how many celebrities are going to be interested in getting into politics after the Trump phenomenon. Well, that's a big question. I They're, think a, a lot are, I think, right now. But if it fails, I guess if it goes badly, maybe they won't. But I, I think it's he showed a real weakness of the parties, a real weakness of the notion that you need experience to govern. We've never elected a president like Trump, obviously, with no no political experience. And then look at the world. I mean, so I'd say two other points on this, not to go on too long, but clearly there's a kind of Trumpism around the world, a nationalism, a, a hostility to immigration, a hostility to globalization, fear of new technology. All those things are, you know, incidentally not unreasonable in certain ways, maybe. But it doesn't look like just a one-off American thing when you look at France and and uh, you know Brexit and these are all different things, but they are not totally unrelated. Obviously, and especially in, in Europe, the rise of a kind of nationalist, uh, inward-looking, somewhat backward-looking, I would say, populism, and I would say Sanders. 
My main argument to those, I'm personally inclined kind of to the Trump is a one-off, Trump is a weird phenomenon, let's not overinterpret it point of view. But whenever I start to get inclined to that point of view, I think, gee, what about Bernie Sanders? I mean, Sanders got 45% of the Democratic primary vote. Trump got 45% of the Republican primary vote. Two people who are outside the mainstream, I think it's fair to say, as previously understood of either party in terms of policy views, a socialist and a kind of semi-authoritarian populist. Um, If you could have, no one would have predicted in 2014, 2015 that that would happen. And especially when it happens at a time of not great prosperity, but not a great depression and not a wonderful world out there, but not a, the middle of Vietnam or Korea, let alone, you know, World War II or World War I or something like that. So why were people so unhappy with the status quo? And that does make you think that the Trump phenomenon, Trumpism, the popular reaction or unhappiness that leads to Trump and Trumpism isn't simply a one-off phenomenon. What if there's a recession? Isn't, aren't people going to be even more upset and more susceptible to Sanders-type uh, simplistic solutions or to Trump-like simplistic solutions. And so that's one of the precisely one of the questions that I suggest. We don't really know the answer. It's foolish, I think, to come down too hard on one side or the other at this point. Is there the risk of a, a feedback loop of some sort? I think a lot of people on the Trump right aren't so much in favor of Trump as they are against the left. And the left has gotten almost hysterical in its resistance movement, which feeds into more the people on the right who like that Trump sticks it to the left, makes them more happy with him sticking it to the left, and and the cycle goes on. Absolutely. Well, the cycle can go on all at once, but there is reality. And the the unfortunate thing for America is if the cycle goes on, we're not going to be governed well by either party. And we're going to have a politics that's extremely divisive, uncivil, and unconstructive. And you know what? There really are things that need to be done. We need to actually deal with foreign policy crises. We need to deal with the opioid uh, epidemic uh, here at home. We need to get the economy growing faster again. So I totally agree with you. Analytically, you could well have this uh, negative, so to speak, feedback loop. But that's that's a problem if that if that happens. So does the Republican Party have a role in surviving the Trump era? I well, that's one of the questions I ask, and one of the questions to which I explicitly say I can sort of argue it uh, round, and I can argue it square. And I'm not just trying to be <laughs> clever here. And I'm, I really think most serious people I've had more conversations than probably I should have, or than I want to think about about this this topic and related topics over the last few months, really, since he won the nominations, almost over the last year. And I, 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 am, I think it's hard to tell. I think one has to try. I guess my view is this. We have a two-party system. We've had it a long time. We've had the Republican Party for a heck of a long time. If you think, as I do, that on the whole, it's been a pretty healthy party, uh, on the whole, it's not. It may be a little stale and it had some problems, but it's not something that you can just walk, walk away from and say, well, that was kind of ridiculous or that's just ended its utility. It's like a, you know, an old-fashioned computer that's, you know, operating system doesn't work Compact. Anymore. Yeah, exactly. Maybe it'll turn out that way. You never know. You know, I'm sure people in 1850 or 1847 didn't think, oh, the Whig Party, they're finished. You know, they thought, hey, that was, that's been a pretty successful and important party in American history, you know. So uh, it could be, but, but my inclination is you can't assume that. And so you have to try to fight the fight, from my point of view, to fight the fight within the Republican Party first for internationalism, for markets, against a kind of Trumpian populist demagoguery. Uh, But you also have to be open to the possibility that 
that may not be a fight that succeeds, and it may be a much Trumpier party than we think it is already, or that it will, or two years from now, it will be a Trumpier party than we think. And I could then see the possibility of a of a more fundamental reshuffling of American politics. Or as you say, we could end up with the Trumpian Republican Party, a Sanders-like Democratic Party, ineffectual efforts by people like me to do something in the center. And we could have, you know, Trump and Elizabeth Warren as the choice in 2020 with a kind of some attempts at independent and third party efforts that don't go anywhere. I think that would be a bad outcome. Right. The then the, the answer to the question of how does this end is not well. Well, that is always a possible answer, unfortunately. <laughs> Much as one hopes that that is not the answer. And in America, things usually end up okay. So one has reasons for, for confidence or at least hope. That's it for the Crystal Clear podcast this week. Be sure to tune in every week. Just go to iTunes or Google Play for a free subscription or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. Thanks so much, Bill. Thanks, Eric. I'm Eric Felton. Thank you for listening.